We begin today part 22. This is my 22nd sermon that I've preached in the book of the Judges. And if you're new to LCC, I'm not a big fan of topical preaching. I love verse-by-verse expository preaching just to to follow the storyline. And so I realize some of you might be hearing this for the very first time. So here's what you need to know. Right, Israel, they're in Egypt, in slavery. They come out after 400 years. They wander in the wilderness 40 years under Moses' leadership. Then after Moses, the leadership's passed on to Joshua. Joshua is the book of the conquest. They go in, they conquer the land that God had promised them. And then after Joshua is the judges, is the settlement period in Israel. And one of the the reasons Judges 2 tells us that when Joshua went in, they conquered most of the land, but not all of the land, was so that God could test the subsequent generations to see if they'd be obedient, if they'd be faithful. And of course, that's the problem. They're not. And Judges is this ongoing cycle of sin. The the people, they are complacent and they compromise. And literally they're like, oh, we don't need to like drive out the inhabitants of the land. We just move in right next door to them. It'll, It'll be okay, right? We know how that works out. Um, So they move in right next door to them, and these people, of course, they introduce them to their cultural norms, right? To their foreign gods. And they begin to worship Yahweh along with these other gods. And God's, he's a jealous God, and he's not cool with that, so he raises up all these nations to oppress them. Well, of course, when the nations are oppressing them, then they want God's help. They cry out to God for help, and God, he raises up these judges. And really, the term's probably better uh, described in the original language as deliverers or saviors, because they're not judges in a legal sense, they're deliverers. And so these judges uh, are raised up, and they deliver Israel militarily from the hand of these oppressive nations. And then Israel, everything's good for, for a while. And then they fall back into this ongoing cycle of sin. Sometimes not a whole lot different than our own lives. Well, that's the backdrop for today's story. Um, Judges chapter 15. Uh, Not only is this part 22 of our series in Judges, but it is part 3 of 4 of uh, the Samson narrative. So, here's what's going on. Chapter 15, verse 1. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. Now, the phrase, after some days, we're not entirely sure how long a period has gone by. A few weeks, a few months. But remember, if you were here last week, what happened? There was this huge wedding feast. He's about to marry this girl. He has no business even being in a relationship, maybe like someone like you. So that's the situation that he's in. Okay? That's... That's the situation he's in. His parents try to discourage him from this relationship he should not be in. He's like, yeah, whatever, I'm not listening to you. And then, of course, at the end of this seven-day party and wedding feast, he tells the, the famous riddle, or infamous, depending on how you're looking at it. Philistines can't figure it out. They threaten his wife. Listen, you find out the riddle. You find out the answer, because this is going to cost us a whole lot of money, and we're not prepared to pay it. Otherwise, we're going to kill you and your dad. So she comes to Samson, she gets him to tell the riddle, and then she shares it, and then they figure it out, and they tell him, and he is so furious, he goes to one of the nearby towns, kills a bunch of Philistines, takes their garments to pay off the debt. And after he pays off the debt, he's still, I think, fuming, and he has to, like, calm down, so he just leaves and, like, goes back home for a while. Mom and Dad's house. The whole while, he's unaware, as it says at the end of chapter 14, verse 20, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Yeah, you can't make this up. 
So, he's there, right? He shows up, and it says he's coming, and his intention is to go into her. And there's somewhat ambiguity here. Does he mean to simply visit her, or does he mean to consummate the marriage? Well, it's a little, little unclear here, but in either case, I think Samson probably knows he's done messed up. Like, he's got the little goat along with him to give to his wife as a gift. I know that might not be impressive. Think instead of goat, flowers, jewelry, chocolates. Okay, then you're thinking, right, uh, where Samson's at. I think in Samson's mind, he's like, yeah, probably shouldn't have blown up like that, even though my wife totally betrayed me, and I probably should have responded to her text and her phone calls. So I think he kind of knows a little bit the fact that he's got the goat with, her, with him to give to her, that he's messed up. But apparently, Samson, he never meant to break off the marriage in the first place. He's thinking he's going to come back, and it's going to be just as it was. That's going to be some surprise for him. Verse 2, And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. I mean, after all, like she totally betrayed you, sold you out, and you had to go kill all those guys to pay off your debt. So I I thought you hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she is? Please take her instead. And so his, his father-in-law is trying to put this positive spin on the situation. It's kind of interesting. And it's like, are, are we supposed to be impressed by the father-in-law's effort to put a positive spin on this? He's like, Samson, here's the thing. She's married someone else, but look, her little sister's way hotter than she is anyways. Right? You're like, some of you kind of cringed as I said that, right? <laughs> it, it was cringeworthy, I admit. <laughs> but that's like, that's normal for them. Right? And you wonder, like, does the little, does the younger daughter have no opinion in the matter? Dad's just like, ah, oh, whatever, take the younger daughter, she's way hotter anyways. Does she, does she not have a say? Like, are we supposed to be impressed by the father-in-law's efforts to appease Samson, to put a positive spin on the situation? I think what we see here in the father's response is another example of the canonized Canaanite society that they live in, right? Canaanites is dominated by the, the Canaanites, these pagan nations around them, who, oh, by the way, shouldn't be there. And had Israel obeyed God from the very beginning and drove the other nations out, they wouldn't be there. Think about the cause and effects when we don't obey God. No, we, when we see this, right, expressed in the abusive treatment of, of women here in the father's response, like, dude, marry the younger sister, she's, she's way prettier. It's not supposed to be like that. You think about our culture today, all the ways the culture says this is normal, and we're like, no, as Christians, that's not supposed to be normal. Well, if Samson's parents couldn't discourage him from marrying the Philistine girl, you think the father-in-law is really actually going to be able to convince him to marry the girl he doesn't want to? No, not at all. Verse 3, And Samson said to them, This time... This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. This time. Now, in saying that, he kind of acknowledges that in the previous time, in chapter 14, when the Philistines answered his riddle, even though they cheated, and he went to the other city and killed a bunch of guys to take their clothes to pay off the debt, kind of acknowledges that maybe that wasn't the best thing to do. But here, he's like, I have every right to do this. Samson is furious. And with this, we see, as I said last week, the key verse in this entire narrative was chapter 14, verse 4. I'd love to throw it up on the screen. 
Chapter 14, verse 4 was so fundamental because, remember last week, he wanted to marry this Philistine girl. Mom and dad could not convince him not to. And you're like, why is he, why is he doing all the things he shouldn't be doing? Mom and dad didn't get it. They didn't understand, but it was from the Lord. Now, that's not an interpretation. That's just me reading the verse. Why is this all happening? It was from God. That's why. Because God's plan for Samson from the very beginning was that he would deliver the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. They've been living under Philistine subjugation for 40 years. 40 years. Philistines have ruled over them. In chapter 14 last week, it's like, Samson's like, yeah, I don't want to deliver them. I want to do my own thing. I want to cozy up to them. And God's like, yeah, no, you're not going to cozy up to them, right? And so what we see here is this divine providence working. Even as Samson seemingly swims like up current, like against the current, against the flow to do his own thing, like the characters in the story will unknowingly, here's the thing, create the very circumstances that God has ordained to happen. In other words, God's plans won't be stopped by this punk kid, Samson. We have such a big God. And so where in chapter 14, he's trying to cozy up to the Philistines, oh, have things have changed now in a fulfillment of chapter 14, 4. Now here back in chapter 15, verse 3, he is dead set on hitting him where he starts. Verse 4. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Philistia is grain country. And Samson wants to hit him where it hurts. Right? Imagine you've been working a summer job, and at the end of the summer you're counting all the money right on the table, and someone comes, pours gas, and lights it on fire. Okay, that's the emotion, right? That's, that's what is going on here. Samson hits him where it really hurts. He strikes at the heart of their economy. And yet, unlike other deliverers in this book, the book of the judges, the book of the deliverers, Samson never once calls out the Israelite troops to join him. Remember, his task is to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. doesn't call him out. You might even say that Samson is a man that has a higher calling than any other deliverer in the book, and yet he spends his whole life doing his own thing. He spends his whole life doing his own thing. And, and I think there is such a problem within so many aspects of American Christianity today which emphasizes individualism by de-emphasizing the church. And this is really easy to do because the culture does it. And honestly, whatever the culture does, it seeps into our walls to get us to try to conform with it. It does. Culture prizes individualism. 
And so, so many people today, individualism, are you part of a local church? No, but I've got this awesome podcast I subscribe to. I'm watching all these great sermons online. It's just awesome. And I, I pray and I read my Bible. And so Christianity becomes very individualistic. Just as the culture prizes it. You see Samson here? Just doing his own thing. Never calls out the Israelites to join him. He just has this personal vendetta. Well, the Philistines conduct this investigation. And they realize and they uncover Samson's the culprit. He's the one that burned the grain fields. But they also learn that he was provoked by his father-in-law's actions against Samson. So Philistines have a decision. They need a scapegoat. They've got to deal with this, right? This just cost them a lot of money. And so apparently the Philistines may have concluded, listen, it'll just be easier if we deal with the father-in-law. Let's just deal with him. And once again, why is this all happening? Chapter 14, verse 4, right? Mom and dad don't understand fully, but it was from the Lord. Why? Because God is seeking an opportunity against the Philistines to break the status quo. And it's interesting. Back in chapter 14, the Philistines threatened Samson's wife. Tell us the answer to the riddle or we're going to burn you and your father with fire and kill you. And yet the very outcome, the very outcome that Samson's wife tried to avoid is going to occur anyways. It's a humble reminder that even though people may act like they are the masters of their own fate, we're not. You may think that you are the master of your own fate. You're not. And we see that here in this story. The very outcome Samson's wife tries to avoid in chapter 14, right? If I only find out the answer to this riddle and give it to them, I can save my life. And yet her life ends up being taken away from her anyway. It's a humbling reminder that God is totally sovereign and God is totally in control and that we're not. We're not. The culture would tell you that you are in control, that you are the master of your own destiny. Then you read the pages of the Bible, and it's like, oh, it's not that way? Okay. And I, I get that that can be kind of scary to think that we're not in control, but God is. Right, there's, whew. Some of you, if you're control freaks like me, or you have that proclivity, I'm causing anxiety in you right now. Thinking about that. Thinking about you have no control over the cards that you're dealt. And that, once again, I get that that can be scary, but it doesn't have to be because we know the one who deals the cards. We're not the master of our own fate. God is totally in control of all things. It can be scary, right? Not when you know the dealer. Not when you know the one who deals the cards and he is a good God and he loves us. And he died for us. And there is comfort to know in that he is totally sovereign and totally control over all things. Well, when Samson finds out that they've been taken from him, that they've been killed, uh, he's not happy about that. Verse 7, And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, you burn people, you set them on fire, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. Kind of a 
strange sentence fragment right there. After that, I will quit. In other words, I'm going to come after you and I'm going to hit you so hard. And after that, we're done. Right? In other words, Samson, I think in his mind, he has every right now because they killed them. He has every right to come in and have a free, I'm, I got a free punch to land on you. That's what it is in Samson's mind. And so, verse 8, he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. That the reference to hip and thigh is a common idiom and a common expression for total victory. In other words, he came in and he lit them up. He beat the snot out of these guys for killing his wife and his father-in-law. But uh, they're not just going to let that go. And once again, you see what happened in chapter 14. Samson tries to cozy up the Philistines, and yet that's not God's plan. And the very characters, right, like Samson, unknowingly will create the very circumstances God has ordained to be. Mom and dad don't fully understand it, but it was from God, because God knows what he's doing. God is fully in control of the situation. Even Samson, as he seemingly disobeys God, and now we see that coming into play actually happening, and literally it's going to be Samson hits them, they hit him back, Samson hits them, they hit him back. Well, They come looking for him. He's fled to Judah. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. They said, Why have you come up against us? We know why. Because Samson uh, lit him up. But beyond that, why? Chapter 14, verse 4. Because God was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. God is totally in control. God is totally in control of this story. Good news, especially when you turn on the TV and it seems like the world is out of control. It's not. It seems like that way. It's not. It's not at all. And I'm thankful that we have a totally sovereign God. We know that God is looking to break the status quo between Israel and their enemy, just as, I would argue, application. God wants the status quo to be broken between us and our enemy. Sin. Sin that entangles us. He wants that broken. Sin that holds us back from living in complete freedom to Christ. And... Unfortunately, as we're going to see, Israel will be totally okay with the status quo, with the Philistine oppression. And unfortunately, there are so many Christians that are also okay living under the shackles of sin. It's like, why would anyone want that? If there was an alternate like, option, like, why, why would anyone want that? People of Judah, like, why do you, you've lived under Philistine subjugation for 40 years? Like, why would you want that when freedom is offered to you? Christians, like, why, why, why would you want that, right? Wouldn't you want total freedom? And so many people are like, ah, eh, no, I'll settle for 90%. Right? Uh, 90% except the 10% of this sin that just, I, I'm just so entangled by. And so, after the Philistines come, they tell them why they're there, because they're looking for Samson. Then 3,000 men of Judah, verse 11, 
They went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know the Philistines are rulers over us? Like, hello? Forty years they've ruled over us. Nothing's changed. That's still the status quo. They own us. Don't you get this? Look what, you, look what you're doing. He's literally caused this international crisis. What have you done? And he said to them at the end of verse 11, As they did to me, so have I done to them. Right? They hit me, so I hit them back. They adopt this almost Philistine ethic. Right? He hit me, so I hit him back. And you just see like the immaturity just reek off of his response here. And they said to him, Samson, you put us in a really awkward position right now. We have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. You know, if I, if I had to describe right, this section, verses 9 to 13, and if you're taking notes, two words, two words right here, missed opportunity. It's a missed opportunity. Right? Philistines come, why are you guys raiding? Samson did this. This is why. He's responsible. Okay, hang on. Let's just, let, let us go talk to him, okay? Samson, what is going on? They hit me, so I hit him back. <sighs> Samson, they rule over us. We have to give you into their hands. Don't you get that? And yet, do they? Like, instead of calling Samson to lead them into battle as previous deliverers had done in the book of the Judges, they just try to negotiate the peace. They just, they're like, I don't want to like, they don't want to cause anyone to be upset about the situation. And that's really, guys, that's the problem with the world. The world today would rather be slaves to sin than slaves to Christ. John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Would you rather have darkness or light? And the problem with the world is they're like, darkness. No, no, maybe you didn't understand. Darkness or light. No, no, darkness. No, why would you want that? So Samson's flight to Judah this personal feud he has with the Philistines. We've got this international crisis. The whole world seems like it's upside down. Is it? Of course not. Why? Chapter 14, verse 4. Mom and dad, they don't get why this is all happening, but it was from God. God knows what he's doing. And God is determined to break the status quo between Israel and the Philistines. Although I would admit that Judah's response here is incredibly disappointing. Instead of rallying their troops to defend Samson, their countrymen? Instead of calling on Samson to lead the way? We're left with more frustrated, unmet expectations. It seems the people of Judah would, would rather deliver Samson into the hands of their enemy. They would rather continue to live under the enemy's domination than fulfill the mandate God had given them to drive out the enemy. Folks, God has not called us to be passive, passive Christians. The sort of Christians that we just sit on our tails while the world goes to hell. Literally. 
And yet, that is what the majority of Christians do. They go through the motions. They maybe come and warm a pew, just like this one, maybe once a week. How insulting that is to the king. The king who promises us freedom and goodness. And then we instead choose the world. They chose the Philistines instead of Samson in this moment and the promises of God. And it is a missed opportunity. A very missed opportunity. They have no stomach themselves to challenge the existing political realities. They would rather live under the subjugation of the enemy than have freedom. No, I, I don't always like to bring politics up in my sermons because I, I think I want to focus. I want to focus on the Bible, so I don't want to bring politics up. And then I thought, I can't do that. Like you, you can't say I don't want to bring politics up because I want to focus on the Bible. Because as soon as you open the Bible, as soon as you understand the gospel, as soon as you look at this man Jesus, you realize we have a different leader, we have a different ruler, we have a different king, and you've already brought politics up at that point. If you understand who Jesus is, that He lived the life we could not live, that He died the death we should have died, that He paid the price we could not afford to pay, you've already gone there. You've already brought up politics. Think about that. And this story, besides that, is deeply rooted in the politics of this period. And Judah has no stomach, no stomach to challenge the existing political realities. They are totally fine with the regime in place. Samson, we have to deliver you to them. Do they? Or is there another option? I personally think that the United States will continue to decline, especially... Uh, when it comes to religious liberty. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing if religious liberty continues on the decline. Uh, I think it will become increasingly unpopular to be a Christian next year than it was this year, and, and so on and so forth. I think after the Supreme Court legislated, and of course I use that word because the Supreme Court's job is to interpret the law, not to legislate. That's what Congress does. Um, but when they legislated on gay marriage in 2015. It was a bittersweet moment. Um, bitter for the obvious reasons, but sweet for another moment. It was a sweetness that I think can only come from a refining, a purifying of the people of God. And so it should come no surprise to us when we see hip, cool Christian leaders, whether they write books about dating and kissing it goodbye, or whether they help produce songs that we even sing. Should it come as a surprise? No. Because it is growing increasingly unpopular to believe what Christians are supposed to believe, what the Bible says. Ten years ago, it's still kind of cool. 2019? No. It, it, I think we are past the point. It is no longer cool or culturally acceptable to be a Christian, as long as you keep your beliefs to yourself. Conversations I've had, listen, I don't care, Joe, people have told me, if you believe X, Y, and Z about abortion or anything LGBTQ related, that's totally fine. You can believe that. Just keep your mouth shut. You keep your opinion to yourself. Okay? You express your opinion, you're not tolerant. 
Those are real conversations I've had. And I say that, I say that because we have a job to be salt and light in this world, and being salt and light requires us to oppose what the culture celebrates, and that will get you into trouble. If you do the things that you're supposed to do as a Christian, being salt and light, you will get in trouble. Are you prepared for that? Listen, if you're looking for the easy option, it will be much easier to go along like Judah, to refuse to challenge the status quo. Listen, Samson, we got to deliver you over, right? They rule over us. That's just how it is. They're the regime in charge. Just come on, man. Come with us. Don't make this any harder than it needs to be. Just toe the line. Keep your mouth closed. Keep your head down. Why do they do that? The word isn't mentioned here. But when you think about the setting and the context, I think it's pretty obvious. Fear. Fear. They're, they're afraid. They rule, they rule over us, Samson. We don't deliver them over to you. We don't deliver you over them. We're in trouble, Samson. They are afraid. It will no doubt be easier to go along like Judah, refuse to challenge the status quo out of fear. But Christians, here's the thing. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. They miss these opportunities to find freedom in God. They miss these opportunities because fear holds them back. And unfortunately, many Christians today join the ranks of Judah all the time with missed opportunities because they're scared. And so we don't witness to people. We don't share the gospel with people. We're afraid to speak truth to people. What if they call me a bigot? Here's the thing, they already think you're a bigot anyways if you believe the Bible. They do. And fear holds us back. I think the stats are over 50% of Christians have not shared the gospel with anyone in the last year. Think about a room right here, right? right? And let's just suppose everyone in here is a Christian. But in reality, there are probably people in here who are not Christians. I always, I like to say that sometimes, just acknowledge the elephant in the room. Like, there are probably people in this room right now who are not Christians, who if they died, they'd go to hell. Let alone people you see every single day. And that should, that should concern us, right? And yet fear holds us back. And we miss these opportunities to be salt and light, to be this countercultural. We're just like Judah. Oh, let's, not, let's not upset the waters, right? Let's just keep the status quo in place. You want to know what real fear is? I'll tell you what real, real, real fear is. Matthew chapter 10. Verse 28, 32, and 33. Here's real fear. Because when you think about like the missed opportunities, you think, what's the worst that can happen? Someone kills you, right? This is the worst that can happen. Here's real fear. And do not fear those who kill the body, Jesus says, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Nothing could be more terrifying, I think, than standing there and be like, Jesus! And he's like, well, why are you acting like you know me, dude? No, Jesus, it's me, it's Joe Decker, I'm the pastor of Lynchburg City Church. 
Sorry, dude, I don't know you. Away from me. To think how many Christians will be surprised. Right? And I'm sure there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I am a Christian, right? And they think they're Christians, but they haven't actually responded biblically to the gospel. Fear holds us back. Fear, no doubt, is holding the people of Judah back. They're missing these opportunities, right, to be free, to be free of the Philistines. And, and fear holds so many people I know, so many Christians back from living a life of freedom and service to the king of the universe. Worst thing that can happen is they're going to kill you, right? And you're going to die anyways. Well, they hand him over. Verse 14, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came, shouting to meet him, Yeah, we got Samson! Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramoth Lehi. The author observation that this isn't just any jawbone, it's a fresh jawbone, is significant because in Samson we find someone who is really callous. It's like, yeah, I know I'm a Christian, I know I'm supposed to like obey God, but I kind of do whatever I want, right? That's Samson, right? It's like, it's like, yeah, I probably shouldn't be having my boyfriend come over to my house and spend the night and us do stuff that we really should only be doing if we're married, but whatever, right? That's Samson. As a Nazarite, he is not supposed to touch any dead bodies, let alone corpses. He's not supposed to drink any type of alcoholic beverages, much like many of you Liberty students, and he's not supposed to get his hair. But he's like, yeah, whatever, right? He's very callous, this guy. So he picks up this fresh jawbone, and he kills a thousand men. A thousand. How does that happen? It doesn't. Apart from God. Apart from God doing what only God can do. And then Samson, with his typical narcissistic flair, wants to immortalize his fabulous victory. Right? No Instagram, no social media there. That's okay. Uh, he wants to do this, and so he comes up with this song. Now, we're not totally unfamiliar with songs in the book of the Judges, chapter 5. We have Deborah's song. She comes up with a lovely song. Samson, we have Samson's song, chapter 15, a little less lovely. You notice in, in verse 16, Samson's song, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. The, the significant difference between Deborah's song in chapter 5 and Samson's song in chapter 15? Not a single word is mentioned about God. In Samson's song, he rather claims all the credit for himself, which certainly causes the reader to wonder, is he even aware? <laughs> is he even aware? And then, finally, what he does is he renames the place, verse 17, and he calls it Ramoth Lehi, which means Jawbone Hill. Now, that might seem innocent enough, but I would argue that it's not actually in the slightest. You might think, well, he's just naming the geographical area that he killed all these guys, but that seems to not have been the issue here. Rather, Samson was immortalizing his victory in so much that as he killed these Philistines, the bodies literally piled up and made a hilltop. 
Samson does not want to be forgotten. Samson wants, to, wants everyone to know how awesome Samson is. That's the issue. He has this very one-sided mindset in his personal feud with these Philistines. But then, notice verse 18, And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of <clears throat> your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So apparently, killing a thousand guys makes you kind of thirsty. That just worked out well. So here, Samson, he prays. Very first time in the story, guys, he prays. We're like, all right, finally, right? He, he's revealing his inadequacy and neediness because that's what prayer does. Prayer reveals that you need something that you can't do yourself. It reveals your inadequacy. It takes the spotlight off of you. It puts the spotlight on God. Like prayer glorifies and honors God in just practically speaking terms. And yet, despite the fact that at first sight, this prayer seems kind of pious and sincere. We're like, wait a second. Uh, verse 18, lest I die and fall in the hands of the uncircumcised. It's really interesting. Samson, why the sudden concern about the defilement and ritual issues? Why do you suddenly care that these guys are uncircumcised? You didn't care when your parents protested in chapter 14, verse 3, about marrying one of these uncircumcised people? And you care now? Why the sudden change, Samson? And then you begin to realize that his prayer is less sincere and pious than maybe originally thought, that his motives seem to be very selfish. And then you also notice the fact that in verse 18, he says, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of <clears throat> me, your servant. The phrase, like the servant of the Lord, is a very special title. Very special title. It was ascribed to Moses in Joshua chapter 1.1. It was also given to Joshua at the end of his life. And, Mo and, and Samson here decides, yeah, that's a cool title. I want it. Kind of gives it to himself. And then even in his words, in his prayers, you see his self-centered approach. That This is really his great victory. God, you granted it, but ultimately it was by the hand of me, your servant. I did it. I made it happen. I'm Samson, and I'm awesome. His prayer is as narcissistic as his manner of life. Notice in his prayer, he displays zero concern about the fate of his people. Samson, your people have been subjugated for 40 years. Do you not even care about them? And once again, we are reminded of his individualistic mindset. Like many Christians today, he doesn't think of his brothers or sisters. He just thinks of himself. He doesn't think about the work yet to be done in Israel. He has no concern for the glory of God. He just doesn't want to be captured by them. I know what I would do if I was God. Enjoy the walk home, Samson, right? Good thing I'm not God. He's much more merciful and gracious than me. 19, and God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called Inhakor. It is at Lehi to this day, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. 
it is truly amazing that God would answer Samson's prayer. He's so selfish. He only cares about himself, it would seem. And not just the fact that he answers it, but he does, he, he does so in such a miraculous way. And then Samson, here, by the way, not one to miss an opportunity, calls the place in Hakor, which name means, it's somewhat ambiguous, but it either means the spring of the collar, which, spring of the collar, Samson called forth God to do this, oh, that would be Samson, or it means the spring of the namer, Samson named it, okay, boom. Like in either case, even in this moment, Samson focuses this story on him, memorializing the power of a man to manipulate and move the hand of God rather than on the gracious act of God that he should even care about Samson at all and bring forth water. And then the story ends, it says, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. This is a common kind of in footnote statement in the Bible, in the book of the Judges, like, oh, so-and-so judged Israel 15 years, and typically what you find is, in the land had rest. When you read the other stories, you'll notice that. Not here. Because things aren't good. Freedom has not come yet. On the contrary, it is and notes that it is still in the days of the Philistines, highlighting the fact that this period bears the signature of their influence and power over Israel, and we are left with a story that showcases missed opportunities and selfish pride. Judah, Judah could have said, Samson, listen, now is our moment. God has given the Philistines into our hand. You be our leader. Enough of this, enough of being subjugated to them. Right? And of course, understand, why, why are the Philistines ruling over them in the first place? Because they've been obedient or disobedient? Disobedient, that's the answer. From this point forward, Samson, we are turning over a new leaf, right? We are repenting of our sins and we are living in freedom of God who has given the land to us. But they don't. They're afraid. Like so many Christians today, they're, they're afraid. It's like the world is dying and going to hell and, and we just keep our head down, don't say anything, right? Don't get on anyone's radar. I don't know what other word to say. So many Christians today were just pansies. We're just, we're just pansies, and we miss the opportunities. Some of you, you know, like, how real the stakes are. I have the vast majority of my family, my dad, my sister. I have so many people in my life, as I know some of you do, and you're so burdened by them, people that are not walking with God. Yes, maybe they say they're Christians, but you know they bear no fruit in keeping with repentance. It's like, what are we doing? Let's not be like Judah. Let's be salt and light to a lost and dying world. You see, Samson, who's just, you think about a guy who just, he's, he's been given such amazing gifts. I mean, his strength alone, just, and you understand, as Christians, we're given gifts. And, and those gifts are not primarily for ourselves. Those gifts are for other people. And yet, like Samson, we've got this very one-sided, individualistic way that we look at things, Right? And so, it's like, 
I just do the church hopping thing. I never get involved. I never get committed. I never come under the authority of the leaders of a local church. I just kind of bounce around. I listen to my online sermons. Sometimes my friends will say, hey, do you want to come to church? And I'm like, well, like, if I don't have anything else coming, sure, I'll come with you. And I'm like, if I don't have anything else going on, how offensive is that to the king? Jesus made the church. Jesus, he did. Right? You think about if Samson had stepped out of this individualistic, like, like, focus that he had and actually thought about, oh, my brothers and my sisters, right? I can help them. I can use my gifts to pull them up. Right? They're under the, the, the bondage of the Philistines and my brothers and sisters, maybe they're struggling with different things and I can come and I can pull them up. How this story might have ended so differently. <laughs> it doesn't have time for that. I'll tell you right now, if, if you are not a part of and committed to and serving and involved in a local church, you are doing exactly what the devil wants you to do. And you might be like, ah, whatever. And you walk out these doors. I'm telling you, like, if that's your mindset, you are doing exactly the devil's like, yes, they are just like Samson. They have been given these gifts by God, and they are just... They're just these lone ranger Christians just going like how the culture is, right? That the American culture prizes individualism and they're just these little individual Christians floating around. You are doing exactly what the devil wants you to do. Right? You do the church hopping thing, never get involved and you're not serving, you're not using your gifts and it's just selfish. Like, wow, like had Samson actually said, you know what, guys? This is it. I'm here. I'm helping you. Freedom is here. We're not going to maintain the status quo any longer. But he never has that. It's like, does that even cross his mind, thinking of the people sitting to his left and his right, in front of him and behind him? It's kind of a sad story. A sad story with missed opportunities, with selfishness and pride. Contrasted with, I think, the greatest story, right? When you think of Christ and what he's done for us, right? He gives everything. My prayer is for us is that we would not be held back by fear. Fear that holds us back from being salt and light, from breaking through the status quo, that we would not be like Samson, but we would count others as more important than ourselves. And that we would not just be the type of individual Lone Ranger Christian who floats around, but that we would be a part of the new covenant people of God. I don't mean your dorm, which is probably awesome, but the new covenant people of God, the church. That's my prayer for us today. And so as the team comes, I want us to pray. I want you to pray with me right now. God, we love you. And... Uh, Lord, I thank you that you are such a merciful God. I can't believe that you're so merciful to Samson. You even answer his prayer at the end of this story. And God, you are so merciful and good to us. But I pray, Lord, that, that we would live in freedom. Some of us, we're still living like entangled by all this sin in our lives and we're seemingly like Judah, just okay with it. And I pray that you would grant us freedom, but not the kind of individualistic freedom that comes from this church culture, American church culture, that's just about the individual, but that we would see ourselves as part of a body, 
unlike Samson, that we would actually think about other people. We need your help, Jesus. So I pray that you would convict those of us that we, that we need to be convicted. Maybe we don't want to be convicted, but we need to be. I pray that, you, that we would feel that. I pray that you would grant us a hearts of repentance, Lord. You would forgive us in the, in the areas where we've gotten into fear and we've just missed opportunities to live totally in the freedom that you have bought and purchased for us on the cross. Help us, Jesus. We desperately need you, and stories like this one certainly illuminate that fact. We love you. Amen.